Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're uh, working our way through the book of Luke, yes? And I uh, have been for a while, and uh, we're, we are getting towards the end now, 24 chapters. Last week I did Luke chapter 19. And, uh, but we ended the message a little bit in a passage of, uh, in Luke 21, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach on Luke chapter 21 this weekend, because 19 and 21, they just work so closely together. There's so many parallels, there's so many ties, and so I didn't want to go to 20 and then, you know, in a couple weeks come back to 21. I wanted to preach 21 right away along with 19. And it's amazing to me, as I even planned to do this, how all of this just tied in with the events this last week and with the Supreme Court. And it's interesting how this message speaks exactly to some of the things uh, happening this past week. And so normally what I've been doing in this series is I'll start out by reading a a passage and then we'll preach our way through that passage verse by verse. But essentially today, we're going to cover almost entire chapter 21. So I'm not gonna, I, I don't have time to just read the whole chapter and then work my way back through it. We're just going to start working our way through it, starting in verse 9, or I mean verse 5, sorry. Verse 5, Luke chapter 21. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, this is Jesus speaking, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, okay? And you might think, hey, didn't we read that passage last week? Nope. This is chapter 21, but like I said, this is parallel, 21 and 19 tied very closely together. This is Jesus, again, repeating the prophecy to his disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And they asked him, you know, including his disciples uh, who are part of this group there, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And again, remember what I keep telling you over and over again. In these chapters, there's this theme. The disciples think Jesus is going to set up his kingdom right away. They are expecting him to set up his kingdom now. And Jesus keeps telling them over and over and over again, it's not going to be now. It's going to be a long time. Okay? And so we keep reading, and we're going to see this again here. And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Notice again, Jesus over and over again answering them, it's not going to happen right away. It's a long ways off. It's not going to happen once. It's not going to happen at once, because they keep thinking it's going to happen right now, and he keeps telling them it's not going to be at once. It's not going to happen right away. Now, it's interesting to me, they ask the question when, and he starts off his answer, not by answering the timing question, but by saying, see that you are not led astray. And, you, and, and the reason for this is because, because the disciples are so expecting him to set up his kingdom right away, he knows that they're vulnerable. He knows that they're vulnerable to go off and do something crazy. They're expecting. Their their expectation is the kingdom's going to be set up on earth right now. And he knows that because of that, they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to believe something they shouldn't believe. They're vulnerable to run off and do something they shouldn't do. Maybe crazy. They've got this messianic fervor. In fact, just so you know, just to give you a little background, all of Israel was gripped with this messianic fervor in the first century A.D., And one of the reasons for that is a prophecy I've preached on before in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gives this this prophecy about, you know, 77s until the coming of the Messiah. And the Jews had done their math, 
And they knew, they were expecting. Now, of course, Jesus did come exactly then. He did come exactly as Dan. He fulfilled all the prophecies, just like Daniel said. He came at the time when the Messiah should come. But of course, most of the Jewish people didn't, didn't accept him as the Messiah. But they knew a Messiah was supposed to be coming up then. So they had done the math, and they were looking for a Messiah. In fact, in the years shortly after Jesus died and rose again, a whole number of different false messiahs rose up. The Jews were just desperate for a Messiah and expecting it. And so, and the Bible even talks about a couple of them. One, uh, one guy named Seudas, uh, he, he raised up about 400 followers and then until the, the and called himself the Messiah and all kinds of crazy stuff until the, the, the Romans cut off his head. They t he's talked about in Acts. Another guy, a Jew from Egypt, actually raised up 30,000 followers, uh, convinced them he was the Messiah, marched them all to Jerusalem, said, when I call out to Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall down. Uh, instead, the Romans came out and, and, and slaughtered them all. This kind of stuff was going on all the time. Josephus talks about them, talks about this wicked band of, of men who were deceiving many and, and getting lots of people killed. There was this messianic fervor and people were being led astray. And Jesus says to his disciples who are expecting it to be right now as well, he says to them, whoa, 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 do not be led astray. Do not be led astray. The kingdom is not coming at once. Very, very important, Okay. And now Jesus is going to provide them with some more filler. Lots of stuff that has to happen before he's going to set up his kingdom. Okay? And so we move to verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So now Jesus says again, it's not going to happen at once, guys. And now you can see, I mean, the son of God he can see the future, and in retrospect now, when we read this passage, we can actually see the centuries going by. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We can actually see, in retrospect, we can see centuries going by in his mind's eye as he makes this statement. Okay, he can see the rise of, of the Catholic Church. He can see the birth of Islam. He can see the Middle Ages and then the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and World War I and World War II and the rise and fall of communism. You can see it all in this passage, Jesus foreseeing many centuries before he would actually set up his kingdom. But now as we move to verse 12, this prophecy takes an abrupt twist. So it all starts with a question, when will these things be? And he's telling them again, as he has been these last several chapters. It's not going to be right away. It's far in the future. And, he, and so the first part of this passage is he's focused on the future. There are all these things that have to happen before he's going to come back. Now in verse 12, the prophecy is going to take an abrupt twist. And all of a sudden, he's going to come into the present. And he's going to say, now, what does this mean for you now? First, he's looking in the future. This all has to happen before I come back. Now, what does this mean for you now? Verse 12. But before all this, so in the meantime, so we talked about the future. Let's come back to now. In the meantime, but before all this, this is what you can expect. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, again, this is, this is not good news, right? They're expecting the kingdom now. And he says, no, 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 there's a long time before I'm going to set up my kingdom on earth. And in the meantime, here's what you can expect persecution. And what's, and what's really crazy about this is it's not persecution in the sense of uh, accidental, sort of an accidental byproduct. And Jesus is like, you know what, sorry guys, but I couldn't help it. But in the whole plan of things, there's going to be some persecution. I couldn't stop it. It's not like that. It's not incidental persecution. It's actually persecution that is part of his plan. It's actually 
part of the whole thing. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. <sighs> opportunity, right? That don't, I mean, sometimes, isn't it crazy how different, how vastly different? You know, Isaiah says his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are so much different than our ways. Isn't it true that God never does things the way we would do them? I mean, if you were God and you, were, you came to earth as a man and then you were going to leave and go back to, to heaven and you, were gonna, you wanted to spread this good news all around the world, how would you do it? How would you spread that good news? I'll tell you, pretty much none of us would think persecution was the best way to do that. Most of us would think, like, if we're God, this is how we would do it, right? If we're God, we don't leave our followers with a promise of persecution. This is what we leave them with, a promise of power. Isn't that true? Like, if, if we're God, and, you know, if I'm Jesus, and I look at my disciples, okay, this is how we're going to spread the good news, the most effective way. Because you're the sovereign God of the universe, so you can do it however you want. This is how we're going to do it. Peter, you're going to become the president of a large nation. And John, you're going to become the president of another long, uh, lar large nation. And Thomas... Well, you're doubting, Thomas. You're going to be president of a small nation, but you're still going to be the president. And you're going to make these guys powerful, right? You're going to make them powerful because how is, how is your message going to get out to the world? You're going to make them powerful. You're going to make them government leaders, and you're going to make them uh, leaders in finance, and you're going to give them power, and you're going to give them influence so that the kingdom of God can spread far and wide. But isn't it crazy? That's, you would think, would be the best business plan for the Great Commission. If you're the all-powerful God of the universe and you have say in how it's done, that seems like a pretty good way to do it. And yet Jesus does it the exact opposite. In everything he does, he does the exact opposite. He comes as Messiah, but instead of being born in a palace, he's born in a manger to poor people. Instead of being friends with kings and queens, he's friends with fishermen. When he wants to spread the good news, the Great Commission to all the world, he doesn't do it through the levers of power. He does it through persecution. He says, this is how we're going to spread it all around the world. You are going to be persecuted. And that's the way we're going to spread this to the world. Through the least of these, you're going to be marginalized. You're going to be discriminated against. You're going to be persecuted. Jesus promises us persecution. He nowhere promises us power. Now, again, of course, this is not to say that Christians never uh, should take positions of power or that they never do get positions of power. Obviously, you know, we have some wonderful government officials that, that come to this church, and that's amazing. And, and, and it's a blessing when godly people can be in positions where they can influence laws for good. Amen? That's a blessing to us. It's not that God's against us. It's not that he never does it. I mean, Daniel was in the government of the Babylonians, right? But that's not how he promises to do it. That's not how he usually do it, does it. He usually does it through the least of these. And it, all we have to do is go through history to see that it's the more effective strategy. That it's the more effective strategy. You look at the, the, the history of the early church, the first couple of centuries of the church, they were marginalized, they were persecuted, they were nobodies, and the church was incredibly vibrant and spread all over the Roman Empire. And then early in the fourth century, the early 300s, uh, something happened that we would think is the most amazing thing ever. An emperor named Constantine got saved. And there's all kinds of legends about how that happened. We don't quite know what to believe and which, which of them are true. But whatever the case, he, he became a Christian or at least called himself a Christian. Some, some of the ways he behaved later make me question how real that was. But he certainly became friendly towards Christianity. And, and you would think, okay, Christianity has been marginalized and persecuted all this time. Now an emperor becomes favorable towards Christianity. This has got to be the best thing ever for Christianity. And you know what it was? It was actually bad for Christianity. 
It was actually bad for Christianity. Over time, uh, him being favorable towards Christianity became this thing where Christianity became almost the official religion of the empire and eventually it turned into the Catholic Church. And it became incredibly corrupt. And again, this isn't a criticism against modern day Catholicism. We're just looking at history. But it became incredibly corrupt and greedy and lustful and all these sorts of things. It lost its vibrancy when it took power. You say, why is that? I'll tell you why that is. As long as Christianity was marginalized and persecuted, the only reason anybody would give their life to Jesus was because they actually repented of their sins and wanted to follow Jesus. But the moment Christianity became a favored thing, part of the, the you know, political structure, suddenly all kinds of people had many different reasons to become Christians. It was helpful for you politically. It was helpful for you socially. It was helpful for you financially. Many people who had no desire to repent and no desire to actually know Jesus came and became Christians until the part that it was so corrupt that, that the, the Catholic Church was actually persecuting people who were true believers. So again, it's not bad. I mean, we, we vote, you know, and, and when there's someone, a godly leader, we want to vote for them. It's not bad. Christians should vote. We should be involved with the political process. We should try to influence things for good. But we should never put our faith in a system because the kingdom of God does not advance through a system. It advances through hearts. It advances through hearts. And that's why throughout history, many true believers have found this to be true they have lived their lives marginalized. They have lived their lives persecuted. We are actually part of a select group of Christians in history who have gotten to choose comfort and Jesus at the same time. We are part of a select group of Christians. Around the world right now, the latest statistics, 215 million of our Christian brothers and sisters are under severe persecution. Many hundreds of millions more are under some kind of discrimination, marginalization, or more minor persecution. But we are part of a group that has gotten to choose comfort and Jesus at the same time. That hasn't always actually been good for us. That hasn't always been good for us. And so Jesus never promised us power. He did promise us persecution. And I'll just take you one other place, Peter, and we'll come right back to Luke 21. Look at what the Apostle Peter preached in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said this, Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. He's talking about persecution. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening, happening to you. Let that sink in for a moment. Do not be surprised when governments pass laws and courts decide against and people discriminate against. Don't be surprised. Don't react with rage and fear and all these sorts of things. In fact, he gives us the emotion we should feel. Verse 13, but rejoice. Rejoice when this happens. We don't go out and get angry. We don't go out there yelling at people on Facebook or in real life. We don't do that. We, we actually rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Now, this is really interesting. The reason why, the reason why we're supposed to rejoice, this is fascinating to me because it ties in with what we're going to see in Luke chapter 21. He gives us the reason why we should be happy when we're persecuted, when we're discriminated against, all these sorts of things. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that because you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's talking about when he comes back. When his glory is revealed is when Jesus returns. Now that is interesting. There's a tie between staying strong in persecution and rejoicing in persecution and being happy when Jesus comes back. There's a link between I'm faithful in persecution and suffering for Jesus now, 
and feeling happy when Jesus comes back. Now, some of you might have thought, I thought everybody would be happy when Jesus comes back. Well, we're going to actually see that different people feel very different things when Jesus comes back, and that includes Christians. But let's go back to Luke chapter 21, and, and we're going to get there. Verse 14, let's keep moving through uh, Luke 21. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Now, I just, I just love this promise. I just love this promise. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to, how to answer. Jesus says, you're not going to be able to figure your way out of this. You're not going to get out of it. You know, persecution and these sorts of things, you're not going to figure your way out by being smart enough, by your legal counsel, by your financial know-how. You know, it's not going to be Christians and teams getting together. How's the church going to survive this? How are we going to move through this next season or, or whatever that's coming on Christians in, in this place or around the world? It's not going to be through figuring it out. He says, settle it in your, mind, in your minds beforehand, not to meditate how you're going to answer. You're not going to be able to figure it out. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus will be with us the whole way. But the key is going to be what Pastor Ray has been teaching us for decades, which is what? Listening to him. We're going to walk with him and we're going to listen. And step by step, he guides his people. But I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you, they will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, again, let's just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus said it, it has to come true. He's not going to come back, and anything he said isn't going to be true. So think about that for a moment. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That has to come true before he comes back. Now, the thing that I find interesting about that is a lot of Christians today have this guilt complex and they're bending over backwards to somehow make our culture like us more. And a lot of Christians, it's like a guilt complex. Literally, I see this all the time. They're constantly apologizing. They think our culture hates us because we've done something wrong. Jesus says, you will be hated. Now, sometimes where we've done stuff wrong, let's apologize and own up. But the fact that our culture hates us does not automatically mean we've done something wrong. It probably means, in many cases, we're actually following Jesus because they hated him. Amen. And the answer to our culture hating us is not to try to make Christianity more palatable or more acceptable or more easy or less offensive. Jesus says, you will be hated. End of sentence. Are we ready to be hated? You say, how do, I, how do we get ready for that? I don't know all how we really get ready for it other than this. Have we determined in our hearts? Have we determined in our hearts that no matter what happens, we are going to serve the Lord and stand strong? Have we determined that? You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That means it's coming for everybody, on the, all believers on the face of the earth. If it would affect you financially, See, like I said before, we're part of a select group of Christians that has gotten to choose comfort and Jesus at the same time. Many, many Christians around the world, when they say yes to Jesus, they're saying, I lose my family, I lose my business opportunities, and all they have is Jesus. Now, in some ways, that was 
maybe easier, I shouldn't say easier, but in some ways it was more clear for them right at the outset that they had to give those things up. But for those of us who have got to hang on to both, will we be able to lose one in order to hang on to the other? When we're hated by all, when that affects, you know, whether you can keep a certain job, whether you can keep a certain career, whether you can whatever, 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 and on and on. That's probably the ones that hit closest to our hearts. Are we willing to stand on the word of God and say, I will not, I will not compromise on this. I'm going to love you like crazy and I will forgive you all and I love this nation until the day I die. But I will not compromise on this because I am standing with Jesus. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, I love these next two verses. But not a hair of your head will, will perish. What in the world? You're going to be hated by your brothers and sisters. You're going to be killed. You're going to be persecuted. He said all of that in this chapter, and he's going to say it again. But not a hair of your head will, per will, will perish. This is what I call a Jesus-ism. And I love Jesus-isms. I love when he just, and then like this. And you say, how can he say you're going to be killed and hated and persecuted, but not a hair of your head will perish? Here's how he can say it. He knows every hair on your head, and you are protected. You are protected in two ways. Number one, your soul is protected, and no matter what anybody ever does to you, because they hate you because you stand for Jesus, nobody can take your soul. No one can hurt your soul. No one can affect your eternity. You are protected. And number two, nobody can touch the physical hairs on your head or touch your job or touch any of those other things. Apart from it was part of Jesus' plan, and he's walking with you. You are protected. That doesn't mean you won't experience pain. That doesn't mean you won't experience persecution, but you are protected. And then now he tells us how we win. Here's how we win. Again, it's by the, it's by the legal counsel we get. It's by our financial you know, ability. It's by our intelligence. It's by none of those things. I'm so thankful. Because then there'd be pressure and stress. It's by how talented you are. No, no, no. This is how we win. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. You know what the beauty of that is? There's no pressure. The way you win is just don't quit. That's the way, that's all we have to do. Just show up, don't compromise, and don't quit. By your endurance, by just enduring through what is to come. All of this must happen. Jesus said it was so. By just enduring, we win. By just enduring, you win. By the way, do you know how many times this comes up in the Gospels? This is not an obscure message. This is a common message in the Gospels. And I can show you a number of passages. Let me just show you two very briefly. Uh, number one, Matthew 10, 22, totally different message, totally different con uh, context. Jesus says this, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Oh, there it is again. But... The one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice that the emphasis throughout Scripture when Jesus preaches is not on starting, it's on finishing. It's not on starting, it's on finishing. Matthew 24, 9 and 13, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations. That would include our nation. For my name's sake. Verse 13, But... The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not starting the race that saves you. It's finishing the race. It's finishing the race. You know, so many Christian ministries nowadays are, are obsessed 
with starting. And by the way, I love starting. You have to start in order to finish. Starting is great. I love that. But they're falling over themselves to lower the bar so that more people will start. But the point isn't to get everybody started. It's to get people finishing. Who's telling people persecution's coming? Who's telling people you won't always be able to hold on to comfort and Jesus together? But he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, let's go back to Luke chapter 21 and we come to verse 20 and I'll skim these next few verses because this is the passage in Luke 21 we ended last week's message on when we were preaching out of Luke 19. In verse 20, now Jesus goes back to the future. Okay, not the movie, but he just goes back to the future and there's not another way to say it. All right, so he started this whole, this whole chapter, he's going back and forth. So the, when is all this going to happen? And he goes to the future. Lots has to happen before I come back and set up my kingdom. He comes to the present. That's what you can expect, uh, you know, uh, persecution and you have to endure. And now he's going to switch again to the future and he's going to come back. And, and, and I'll show you that. But he goes to the future now. Now he's predicting again Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, just like we saw last week. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. And we talked about that last week. We skip ahead a few verses to verse 24. They, the Jewish people, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. This happened, right? We saw that last week. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until, temporary, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And we talked about that last week. We're living in these times. The Jews are back in the land of Israel. They're back in the city of Jerusalem after being scattered for 1,800 years. So we're living in this time when the time of the Gentiles is being fulfilled. And now he goes on, verse 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. So in the days leading up to Jesus' return, there's going to be tremendous natural disasters and the nations in perplexity and fear because of these natural disasters, the roaring of the sea and the waves. By the way, this, this is not happening just yet, but you can see the seeds of it already. What's one of the biggest fears all across the world right now in nations across the earth? What's one of the biggest fears? Climate change. I mean, you can't read a National Geographic anymore. It's like a secular version of Revelation. It's just apocalyptic. You, read, you just go get a National Geographic and it, the, the world is about to end. Every article is the world's going to end, the world's going to end, the polar bears are almost gone and we're about to die and da-da-da-da-da-da. That's what it all is. I mean, that's what everybody's scared of. Our government wants to, well, let's not get into all the taxing and all the stuff they want to do to stop climate change, right? It's just they are scared to death of what's going to happen with the climate and we see the seeds of it. Now, we're not in this yet. Right now, it's going to get a lot worse. Natural disasters and crazy stuff on the earth and the nations in distress, perplexity, not knowing why it's happening. It's going to get, it's going to get worse. You know, I actually read something. Stephen Hawking, one of the uh, most famous uh, scientists of our generation, one of the smartest men of our generation, he just died in this last year. He actually, in the last year of his life now, so again, widely accepted to be one of the smartest men on the planet, you know, before he died, one of the most respected popular scientists, and uh, you can look this up online, he actually was predicting the extinction of the human race in the next 100 years unless we learn to colonize Mars. This is one of the smartest men on the planet. It doesn't just show you, like we just need the Bible to have any form of wisdom. But anyway, uh, those of you who are worried about our extinction, let me just tell you that's balderdash. Jesus will come back in time, all right? So uh, we will get there in this message too. Verse 26, people fainting with fear 
and for, with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, there's a whole bunch of you sitting there going, right now going, I need some good news. <laughs> and Jesus is the ultimate teacher of all time. He's got the perfect timing. He hears you saying, I need good news. And so we come to the next verse and we get the ultimate good news. Verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is the event. Yeah, exactly. Woohoo. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is the event. This is what it's all about. Everything. Everything in human history, everything in your individual life and in your family's history, everything that has ever happened is all leading up to this event. This is what it is all about. This is the climax of everything. Now, I know it feels a little surreal. That's why I put words like actually and for real when I put it up there, because every Christian knows, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. You have to say that to be a Christian. And then we all live as if he isn't coming back because it just doesn't feel real. It feels surreal, right? You mow the lawn, you get up, the sun comes up, you, your, your kids do this and that, and you, you buy a new house, you do all these things. It feels surreal. To think that one day all of this is going to radically change. That we will actually look up in the sky, hundreds of millions of believers, from because the Great Commission will have just been completed, from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. We're going to look up in the sky and we're actually going to see our King Jesus in the clouds coming to earth with great power. And everything in your life is just a lead up to that. It, that, that's the climax. The climax of your life is not that you just got that fantastic job you've been trying to get for years. That's wonderful. Oh, praise God. Wonderful things to celebrate. That is not the climax of your life. The climax of your life is not that you just got married, that, you know, young man, you just managed to, to dupe that beautiful young woman to marry you, and, <laughs> and you're just so excited about that, and that's great. You should be excited about that. That's awesome. That is not the climax of your life. This is the climax. The fact that you just had a baby and it's so exciting. That is exciting. Praise God. What an answer to prayer. We love those things and we celebrate those things. But that is not the climax of your life. Everything in your life is leading up to this. This is the climax of everything. This is what it's all about. Amen. And everything else pales in comparison to this in this day. And I just believe that every joy we experience in this life is a prophetic foretaste of what we're going to feel when we see Jesus. I really believe that. I, sometimes when I try to explain it to our kids, because, you know, your kids, they grew up in a Christian home, they grew up in a Christian church, they go to church, uh, Jesus is exciting. Well, Jesus is church. The, when they feel excitement is when they watch a movie. When they feel excitement is when they go to a sporting event or do something fun. So sometimes what I've told my kids is, that, that joy you felt when we did that, or that joy you felt when we did that, is a little taste. It was put inside you to give you a taste of what you're going to feel when Jesus comes back, which is the real joy. And uh, I just really believe that. And a story I've shared before, but I want to just take a moment to share it here again, because I think it just helps us get a little bit of the heart, and then we'll finish off this message. But um, 
But when I think of joy, when I think of elation, again, I, I often go back. For me, you know, sometimes these, you're at a sporting event, right? And your team wins and you, this, this euphoria overtakes you. And that's a taste. Why would we feel those feelings? Those people who believe in evolution, all we are is animals. Uh, how is it that we evolved this feeling of joy and elation? When a, when, a, when a team wins or something like that, like I, again, I always go back 16 years ago, my wife and I were in Korea and, and the World Cup came and da, 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 I've shared many of these details before, but the, the Korean, I never, I never followed uh, really soccer before in my life. I certainly never followed the Korean soccer team. I had no idea. I mean, I would have assumed that they had a soccer team. Every nation does, but I never followed it. Uh, certainly never cheered for them or nothing like that. And then we were there in Korea and, and and World Cup came, and, and they were just a little team. They were nobodies. They weren't supposed to do anything. They managed to get out of the group stage to the knockout stage. Everybody was just mind blown. I mean, our church had, the church we were going to had 860-some thousand members, and the pastor actually got up on Sunday morning and said, we need to be praying for the team, and it worked, okay? <laughs> the whole nation was praying for them. Literally, this happened. And, and uh, anyway, they got to the first round of the knockout stage, and, and they met Italy. Italy was a huge tournament favorite, just an amazing team, amazing, uh, you know, soccer history. And so, so they played Italy, and, and, and people, millions, Koreans like to do things in mass bunches. We like to have space in Canada, big houses and don't get too close to me. In Korea, you are always touching people, okay? I was touched inappropriately on subways so many times, okay? <laughs> I had to keep my hands up like this so I wouldn't touch them inappropriately. And I'd have a couple of Koreans in my armpits. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, so I went outside. So they love to do things in masses. So they had these screens set up all over the table and literally or over the city, I should say, not over the table, but they had screens set up all over the city and several millions of people were out watching these games. And I went to a park close to our church and over 100,000 people there and we're all jammed together. And, and again, I had never followed the Korean soccer team before in my life, but I'm watching this game. We're totally into it. Of course, the Italians were far better, far superior team. And, uh, but they only managed to get one goal that often happens in many soccer games and like one nothing. And in minute 88, there's only two minutes left in the game. It's one nothing Italy. They've dominated the play. The game's over. There's two minutes left. The miracle's over. And then the miracle happens. A Korean magically scores a goal just two minutes before the end of the game. And it literally felt like the whole city raised up like this. There was like a, like a wave. And we were shouting and cheering. Again, I had never cheered for Korea in my life before, ever. And here I am, screaming, losing my voice, cheering and cheering and cheering. Just, this is amazing. Wow. And then, but it's still only 1-1. So, okay, so now it's golden goal. It's overtime. And I still remember the, the name of the guy. I mean, this is just how impactful this was for me. I don't remember Korean names. They, they name their, 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 they have weird names, right? And I love Koreans, so I can, I can say that. But they don't name their kids Bill or Jim or any of those things, right? But I still remember An Jung Won, okay? And he heads in the ball in overtime. And again, literally, I, I, the, the Korean Peninsula, I am sure, did lift up. There was such euphoria. Now, since then, I've learned some of the science of this and mirror neurons, how our brains catch the emotions of other people. And I found myself suddenly overwhelmed. I mean, there was bottle rockets going off everywhere. Like, it was actually a little bit dangerous, but nobody cared. And, and people were screaming. They were in the trees. We were yelling. I was trying not to weep. I was so overwhelmed with emotion. <laughs> People were crying all around me. I mean, that's the mirror neurons thing. It's got to be. I don't know how that happened, but I'm just like, we're just freaking out that they have won this game. This is miraculous. Now, you say again, 
Again, someone who believes in evolution that all we are is animals. How on earth did we get feelings like that? I'll tell you what it is. It's a prophetic foretaste. Jesus wants us to have a taste. Now think, the king comes back in the air and hundreds of millions of believers, maybe a billion, I don't know, from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. And we look up and we see our king coming to defeat death, to defeat our enemies, to defeat sin, to banish all sadness and fear and hurt from our lives. Think of the euphoria that's just going to sweep through us, the cheer, the joy we're going to feel. It's going to be like nothing we've ever experienced before. It's going to be incredible. But Jesus isn't quite finished. He's got one more thing he wants to say. And again, he's going he's to come back. We've looked at him go to the future and come back to the present. We've looked at him go to the future and then come back to the present. He's going to end this message. He goes to the future. I'm going to come back in the clouds and you're going to see me. Everybody's going to see me. I'm gonna physically, there's a day. It's on God's calendar. We don't know the date, but he's got the date already. He's going to physically come back. Now he brings it back to the present. In the meantime, in the meantime, this is how you are to live. Verse 34, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to be a day of rejoicing. And the Bible talks in many places about this being a day of rejoicing. I'm going to show you in just a moment. It's supposed to be a day of rejoicing, but Jesus is warning his followers. He's not talking to non-believers. Obviously, non-believers, the day of Jesus' return is going to come like a trap. He's talking to his disciples, and he's telling them, you... You need to watch out. There's something you can do, but you need to watch out that that day doesn't come to you, my followers, like a trap. Watch out that this day does not come upon you suddenly like a trap. We see a truth here in this passage. Jesus' day can be experienced by us in two way, one of two ways. It can either be a day of rejoicing or it can be a day like a trap. And you say, how do we how do we meet the day when Jesus comes back so that it's a day of rejoicing and not a trap? I want to show you just very briefly because it has to do with endurance again. It has to do with finishing strong. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy, and we'll come right back to Luke 21, but Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul's about to die and go and be with Jesus. And he says this in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have not started the race, I have finished the race. Look at this. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. In, in the face of stiff opposition, I have finished. In the face of persecution, stiff opposition, I have not compromised. I have not given in. Sometimes it saddens me to see the state of Christianity in North America. The Bible is made up of stories of Daniels and Shadrachs and Meshachs and, and Abednegoes and, and Pauls and Jesuses, who when things got hard, they stood there and did not give in. There would be no stories of heroism in here if Daniel had just gone, oh, it's against the law to pray. I guess I'll just kind of pray quietly or stop for a month. Nothing says I have to pray. That's what a lot of Christians are doing now. We'd have no stories in here at all if, the, if God's people just gave in every time things got hard. 
If God's people just took the easy way, let me just sign that thing there. Let me just put that sticker on my dashboard. Let me just do whatever's easy to make, to just get through. There'd be no stories. This book would be a lot thinner. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Now look at how he ties this to the day when Jesus returns. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's going to be many brothers and sisters around the world who loved the day of Jesus appearing. They loved it. And who are they? They are the ones who finished the race, who have kept the faith. Now we go back to Luke chapter 21, and there's these others, though, Jesus says it will be like, like a trap. And again, we're not talking about non-believers. We're not even talking about people who call themselves Christians, but they never really repented of their sins. They never gave, they never submitted their lives to Jesus. We're talking about real believers. And, and Jesus says it's going to come on them like a trap. You say, what? How does that even work? It's sort of like this. It's sort of like dad coming into a room and a kid gets, or mom might be even worse in some cases, right? And a kid's caught with his hand in the cookie jar, right? Is he happy to see his, his dad when he's got his hand in the cookie jar and he knows it's not supposed to be there? No. Is he afraid he's going to get kicked out of the family? No. Is he afraid he's going to die? I mean, those kind of thoughts might pass very quickly through the parent's mind, but then they will be banished. <laughs> it's just a feeling. It's not a rational thought. Don't act on the impulse, right? But he didn't expect dad to come in the room. He thought he was going to do whatever it was he was going to do. I remember when, when uh, you know, kids go through this stage, right? When Boaz was a little bit younger, he had this stage where it was like if he was quiet... That was like trouble. In fact, LaDonna and I would have like alarm bells in our, in our brains and someone would say, have you heard Boaz? And immediately both of us would be up because that was when you knew a pen was out on the couch, things were being eaten or, you know, whatever. Things, bad things were happening. Evil presence was in the house <laughs> when he was quiet. We kept trying to cast that evil presence out. He turned four and I think it mostly left some of it. But anyway, um, but some Christians, it's like they're caught, they're, they're actually not ready, you know, they're, they, and so dad comes in, it's not that they're getting kicked out of the family, but they weren't expecting him to come in, and that's not good news when he opens the door and comes in and catches them doing whatever it is that they're doing, because they know there's discipline there, all right? And Jesus tells us, by the way, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15 confirms this. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15 talks about some people who get into heaven, but as if escaping through flames. They, they're in heaven, yes but they come in through discipline. And the day of Jesus' return is not a day of joy for them, it's a day of discipline. And Jesus tells us three things that can cause this, and I, I've got them underlined there, three things that can cause his return to be, come on you like a trap instead of a day of rejoicing. One is dissipation, one is drunkenness, and one is the cares of this life. Dissipation just means squandering, just means waste. God gave you resources, he gave you time, he gave you ability, and you squandered it. all of it on yourself. None of it was invested in eternity. You're the servant that hid the talent. None of it was invested for God's kingdom. Dissipation, you just squandered it. You were given time, you were given a certain amount of resources. Jesus is going to ask when you come back, how much did you give? He's going to first ask, how much did I give you? And out of that, how much was just for yourself and how much had an eternal focus. Dissipation. You know, that's going to be the day when, you know, there's Christians, I think now, sometimes I talk to them and they kind of feel like, why am I serving so much and other people don't? Why am I giving so much and other people don't? On that day, you will be happy to be the one 
who sacrificed and served. Because those who live in dissipation, he's going to come back, they're caught with the hand in the cookie jar. Everything you had was from him, and none of it got invested back. That's not a, it's not a happy return. And then there's drunkenness, which just speaks of immoral living. You don't want, you don't want Jesus to come back and catch you in that. You, don't, you really don't want Jesus to come back and catch you in that. That's not a happy thing. His eyes a flame of fire, holy, scary when you're sinning. Cares of this life. This is just people who get overwhelmed with life instead of serving Jesus. They're so busy working, so busy worrying about bills, so busy dropping off the kids at every possible activity conceived by man. Life is so busy that you never stop to think about the one thing that really matters, that one day Jesus is going to come back and we're going to live with him for eternity. And it comes on you like a trap and a kid caught hand in the cookie jar all of a sudden, oh my goodness, Jesus is back and I have not lived for him. And it's not a happy day. For it will come, he says this, and we finish with verses 35 and 36, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. It doesn't matter whether you, whether it's coming on you like a trap or whether it's coming on you as a joy, whether you believe in him or not, this day will come. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Next week is the prayer summit. I want to encourage those of you who can. Let's come and let's seek God's face for our country and, and for our church. And let's ask Jesus to come back. But maybe right now, Maybe Jesus just wants to say something to you from this message. Maybe there's something he wants to say to you and just, maybe it's just an encouragement. Maybe it's something he wants to say, I want you to deal with that. You don't want to still be dealing with that issue when I come back. And he's saying, I want you to confess that. I want you to, to, to start dealing with that. I want you to change that. I want, whatever it is, oh, let's just give him a moment and let him just speak into our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we want you to come back. My prayer is for myself and my family to be ready when you come back. And my prayer for this church, our church family here, that we would be ready when you come back. Give us a healthy sense of urgency. Not an unhealthy one, but a healthy sense of urgency filled with joy. We're not facing the future with fear. You said that we're supposed to rejoice in, in, when we get to share in your suffering. So we're going to rejoice. We're going to live with hope because at the end we know we win. Lord, would you help us to live with tremendous grace in these coming months and these coming years? Would you help us to raise our kids strong for you? And would you help us as a church to be united, and to be salt and light in this culture. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.